You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. So, Andre, I seem to be a little tongue-tied uh, today. Could be the few bottles of Chardonnay, the bottles of Vino Verde. Uh, the uh, I don't, I, we the, don't usually we don't usually line them up and knock them down with the podcast. But the thing is, we usually only have two or three things to talk about. But this, we're lucky enough that it's just like one this, after the other after the other. Yeah, and, yeah, we've and, got a lot going on today. And uh, well, we um we had a day where you came down to Niagara, and I said, you know what, we're going to speak to one guy, but I I think I've got another one lined up. Let's let's see because he's made his first gamay. Yes, and uh, both of us love Gamay, and yes. um, so obviously we had Andre Lipinski. Yep, and then later on we had uh, probably one of the most exciting winemakers. Although he's very laid back, like he's not excitable, but he's exciting to have on the podcast. And we I were, think if we're, we're talking about forward-thinking people in yep. the industry, he is definitely at the top of the list, and. Um, when I started my little wine company, the ADX Wine Company, just learning how cooperative the industry works is is one of the things that, that drew me to it. I don't think there's any winery that's throwing any other winery under the bus. It's a lot of a lot of hands handshakes and people helping each other out. But he's he's also at the top of the list for that. He's probably one of the uh, most fun guys to to talk to. Hundred percent. And uh, he is the bench wine guy. He is the bench wine guy. He is Brian Schmidt. And here we go. We're testing something out today, so hopefully this works, Andre. I'm, I'm, I want to. Yeah. Um, so we got a mobile studio now. Yeah, we brought the Toronto studio to St. Catharines. So we got three mics set up. So this should be great. But I am so thrilled to finally get this guy around my table. Yes. And uh, we've talked to him many times on many issues. <laughs> He's, he is literally the reason that we have the swear jar. Yeah, he is the reason. <laughs> and it is Brian Schmidt of Vineland Estates. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, we're thrilled to have you. And, um, oh, hell, we got so many questions. And Wait, does hell count for the swear jar? No, hell is okay still. That's, if you can say it on network toonie. television. That's a toonie right there. You <laughs> if you can say it on network television, you can is not available. Okay, there's but, one. That's so, but I mean... So the swear jar, just so we're all clear, the swear jar, the proceeds will be going to Haiti. Okay, so perfect. Oh, okay. Okay. Right, okay. So, I, wait a second. I got a, I got some money in my pocket. I know that I got some from earlier today. Uh, what is it? Uh, do, is it a toonie or a loonie? Well, days? he's at a toonie, so I think we're, it's oh, the expensive swear I've, jar. I've got, uh, I've got that. Right, we'll give you a discount for the first I got first a half, two. so I can say F you. That's about it. That's, <laughs> I can, that's about where I can go with that one. So, uh, I've got lots of questions for Brian. I'm sure Brian doesn't know exactly what, what, uh, what to expect today. Well, I know, I know where I want to kick it off. All I need right. to kick it off where we kick off all of the, uh, the, the legacy podcasts. Sure. Um, Let's go to it. What, what got you into wine? Uh, well, that, actually, the bigger question is how could I have gotten out of wine? Um, okay. So, uh, yeah. So, having having grown up on a vineyard in the Okanagan Valley, the same one that my my father's ashes were actually just spread on about three weeks ago, um, we uh, we meandered our way out from BC uh, through uh, the purchase of, of Sumac Ridge and then the sale of Sumac Ridge and then ultimately our family kind of dispersed and, and went around the world. I ended up being a commercial scuba diver for four years. Uh, in an I did not see that coming. <laughs> I did not in, see that coming. In an attempt to uh, to remove myself or extricate myself from the industry, you have to remember in in uh, in the early 1980s when Sumac Ridge started, um, 
it was we were the first or the second estate winery to be established in the Okanagan Valley. So there wasn't really a trend. There wasn't a business established, and so it was really difficult for my mother and father and for the uh, their partners, uh, Harry and Kathy McWaters. And so uh, that partnership lasted for about six years, uh, and then was uh, was severed. My mom and dad ended up going to Germany for six months and, and spent some time with the Weiss family there, which which was in part the continuum of uh, of the St. Urban story that happens some years later. And uh, and so yeah, I was a, I was a commercial scuba diver, and I I had. Uh, a couple of friends uh, had some bad results, and um, I realized I was more mortal than I thought I was. Okay. And in 1991, Alan had a uh, Alan was the winemaker here at Vineland Estates at the time, my brother, and he had a really early harvest, and I was needing to kind of clear my head a little bit, and hopped on a plane and came out and helped for the harvest, and never left. Wait, never so Alan, left. Alan was the winemaker. Alan was the yeah. So Alan was the winemaker at our family winery in BC, and okay. then uh, when uh, we sold the winery in '86. Uh, he stayed on for another year, and then the Vice family actually asked him to come out to this project that they had in Ontario. Um, they were wanting to um, expand not only the winery, but also expand their sales of vines, the cuttings that go into the ground. And so they needed a winemaker to do that, and, and so um, Alan ended up coming out here. He was only going to be here for a couple of years, and he too never left. So the just for clarification, the winery that you sold was? Sumac Ridge. Okay. So that's, that ended yeah. up being part of Bincor, which blah, 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 Which blah, 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 blah. blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And so, but the, the winery that we were born on is, is now home to a winery called St. Hubertus. Oh, okay. Is, oh. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. All right. So uh, let's move past this commercial scuba, scuba diver because I have tons of questions <laughs> about that. <suddenly. laughs> I'm going to move right on by that. Uh, so you come here in 1991. Uh, now you have a winery. Or you're working at the winery. So yeah. when do you become a head winemaker, and how do you guys end up owning the winery? Uh, well, it's, again, a long and circuitous story. I'll kind of cut through uh, most of the fuzzy parts. Uh, 1991, I came out. Uh, Alan was the winemaker here at the time. The Weiss family uh, had uh, was still owning the winery at the time. John Howard, uh, now owner of Megalomaniac, uh, purchased the winery from the Weiss family in 1993, and Alan and I along with it. And uh, and at that time, so you were when, slaves to John we're, Howard. We were, we were slaves, and so at that time, uh, Alan Alan was um, the winemaker uh, and general manager, and just found he was spending more and more of his time uh, on administrative duties. And so in 1993, I took over the winemaking. You're a better winemaker than he is, anyway, right? He even says that. Okay, good. All right, just checking that. I mean, yeah, I had no idea that Alan made wine because all, all of my dealings with Vineland at mm-hmm. the at the beginning, like I met, I, I knew Alan for like two, three years before I met you. Right. Uh, just doing segments on the radio station. If I ever needed a sample or needed information, it was Alan I was dealing with. He was the guy. Yeah. Well, yeah. So the, his signature is on all the caps of all the wines from 1987 until 1993. Wow. I don't have any 93. Can't say I have any of that. I don't have anything anything that I think the oldest bottle John Howard gave me a 1992 Chardonnay. Oh, you're kidding! Several years ago, as he was telling me he will never make Chardonnay at Megalomaniac, and he does not like it, but was happy to give me that little piece of, of Ontario history. Oh, I thought he did make Chardonnay. He does. Oh, now. he does. Oh, now. He does oh, my now. way, okay, Chardonnay. Yeah, my I just, way. Yeah. When, I just when you have to, a winemaker like Seb, uh, you got to do. You know, it. you're going to make. Chardonnay I just wanted to put it on the know. on the record again on this podcast because I think we're working to get John on the podcast. Yes, we, we want. Oh, I want good. to remind oh, him right. as many times as possible that he told me on the record as a journalist many times that he would never make Chardonnay. Okay. <laughs> well, in, in 1992, though, that was a really crappy vintage. So that was a tough year. Not not so dissimilar to what we're starting with this year as well. Yeah. Rain, rain, rain. Uh, we had 19 weekends in a row where it rained. Wow. Is that 92 or this year? 92. So how many weekends in a row we had this year? Yeah. I don't, I, I don't know, but we got some much needed rain today. 
I would, yeah. Desperate. We were yeah. parched. Two two inches or something like that uh, on her? Yeah, we just didn't need it at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're done. Are you swimming in, uh, off the tractor? Dodging raindrops and swerving to miss mud puddles. Wait, so everywhere. 91, 92 is when your history with Vineland 91 starts. is the, yeah, the very first vintage. And when was Vineland founded? Uh, the very first vintage was 1983. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, interesting. So then we got eighty three there. So you got so you guys kind of uh, become a, a, a team in the mid nineties. Mid nineties, yeah. Uh, when when, when John, yeah, when John Howard bought the winery, yeah. Um, and uh, so Alan stayed on as partner with John years later, and then uh, fast forward to uh, nineteen ninety eight, uh, the Gasparis family, the current owners now, um, purchased uh, some shares from John Howard, and then progressively uh, purchased more and more until two thousand and. Four, 2003, when John Howard divested his interests completely and the DeGasperis family took over entirely. So it's, it's now the, the DeGasperis family and then uh, minor shareholders. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So uh, what's your favorite vintage? Oh, not this. I'm throwing no, that one out right now. Like, you're going like straight to the throat. You want right? like, yeah. I want, I want some one. more history. We want well, some we'll more history. We'll get some more history. But, that. Come but, on. but I thought when we when we did uh, when we did Andre, I waited too long. So I want to go your favorite. Okay, vintage. is that right? Okay. So yeah. um, throwing it out there immediately. So I'm going to say the answer is probably not as obvious as as one would think. 2009. Okay, and then I'll follow it up with a Y. With a Y. So 2009 was kind of a sleeper hit. It was one of those years that uh, nobody expected was going to be great in the bottle. Uh, We actually, I brought a 2009 that we'll try a little bit later, Cavranc, the generalist that we did. Um, And it had great structure, great tannin. The wines held up incredibly well. Oftentimes in great vintages, we look at 2010 as an example, we all celebrated that vintage, thought this is going to be the greatest one. This is going to put Ontario on the map. And... It ended up falling a little short. It was great out, great out of the gate, wonderful wines, but they, it just didn't hold up. And so tasting the 2009s in the last number of years, it's been a real uh, eye-opener for me in that cool vintages, true cool vintages like 2009 are, are definitely going to be the uh, the hallmark that defines us because we can expect a cool vintage all the time. Yep. Um, and I would tell you that the hot vintages, the anomalies are actually, in terms of Cab Franc, are actually not our best vintages. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Now, I know when we've spoken to um, the Speck brothers, they said that their winery is the house that Baco built. When we spoke to Len Penichetti, he said that Cave Spring is the house that uh, Riesling built. What mm-hmm. is uh, the variety that has built Vineland? The variety? Gosh, I was going to say hard work built Vineland. But, um, <laughs> the, well, I, I would say the, the most obvious answer would be Riesling. Uh, St. Urban Vineyard being one of the... Um, the most celebrated vineyards in Canada. Um, some would say alongside of Cave Springs uh, Cellars, Q Vineyards as well as where some of the other original Riesling vines were planted. But but certainly uh, St. Urban would be the epicenter of Riesling in Canada when uh, Herman Weiss brought the Riesling vines over originally in 1976 in the hopes of, of establishing not only a vineyard but establishing a stronghold for selling his vines in Canada. Uh, and did so. He was uh, inordinately successful. I would I would say most of the Riesling, certainly in Ontario, is is the Vice Twenty One clone. And so so with with that in mind, I would say that Riesling is also probably one of the the defining uh, factors of success for for Violin Estates. But then I would have to add Cab Franc. Um, when when I started taking over winemaking in nineteen ninety three, Alan said, um, "You can do whatever you want to do, just don't mess up the Riesling." And so. <laughs> Okay, I took I took that seriously, and I hope I haven't messed it up. But I fell in love with Cab Franc uh, in 1991. Actually, the the fall that I arrived 
there was an event actually at Case Spring Cellars uh, called Knives and Forks. It was a fundraiser for a, uh, I forget what it, what it was, but a bunch of wineries and a bunch of restaurants all got together in sort of a feast of the fields kind of a, a manner. And Ed Gorinskis of Lakeview Cellars yep. fame, um, an absolute gem of a man, made this Cab Franc in uh, 1989 that we were tasting in 1991 that blew me away. Absolutely stunning wine, and I fell in love instantly. And it's been my passion uh, ever since. I've been been focusing on uh, um, developing a, a personality for Ontario Cab Franc. And I would I would think that if people would naturally would say Riesling was kind of the the foundation of Vineland Estates, I would say the future is Cab Franc. So well, since we keep we keep going around 1993, and and you in my, in my mind you're winery never comes up as a pre-NAFTA winery. Is it a pre-NAFTA winery? We are. So you theoretically could um, blend. We were always able to blend, yes. yes. We, we, okay. had a, we had a license that allowed us to do that. We never exercised it, uh, with the exception of 2003. Yeah, which was the 99 yeah. yeah. We had to bring some... Actually, we brought Riesling in from Germany that was sourced by the Weiss family. So, so just, oh. to, just to clarify all of that yeah, for anybody we'll listening. Break, break so, it down for someone yeah, like me who so, doesn't remember that. So, okay, first of all, so the blending means to do cellared in Canada, yes. uh, obviously, which is blending 70-30 yep. uh, Ontario versus... Um, non-Ontario, which means anywhere else in the world, so they could do that, but you don't do that, obviously, you're all VQA, and then in 2003, mm-hmm. so, we, so what, um, so they, they've been called short crops, and basically what ended up happening was, if a vintage is declared short crop, which I think 2003 was kind of the last one that was declared. 2003 and 2005. Okay. Uh, but five was such a great year, I think everybody just kind of left that go. But uh, in 2003, it was a very wet vintage, if memory if memory serves, kind of a... 2003 was actually a pretty good vintage. It was, was it? just there was, oh. was not a lot of grapes. Okay, so we have not a lot of grapes. And so the powers that be decided that everybody could blend, and you could go down to uh, 99.1. So 99% out of province, 1% province. Oh wow! So and I remember, but I remember Taws at the it, time made one called ninety nine one. Exactly, I still yeah. have a lot of that in my yeah. cellar. Uh, but it's important to to not uh, conflate the two issues. VQA has always been one hundred percent correct. Solid. So we were given the opportunity to produce non VQA wines, right. whereby any winery in Ontario could do the had the opportunity to blend, as you said, with international wines. Okay. Yeah. You, could, but, you yes. could sell these wines; they were just not labeled as VQA. Correct, exactly. They're not labeled yeah. as VQA. It was just, I guess, to make up the short crop. The, the, yeah, yeah. We, to make you know, sure you had to be able to make some money. Uh, keep the lights you on. Can, yeah, exactly. So that's what it came down to. Yeah. So I didn't realize that that you guys had a blending license, but couldn't because I always, I always but think not of the seven blending license, but didn't, but didn't. Yeah. Correct. And I always think of you know Southbrook has one, but but doesn't. Uh, and there's a, a Shadow to Charm obviously has one. And but, they they used to they used to but doesn't Henry uh, Pelham Henry Pelham would have yeah. one so you always forget about all the the wineries that theoretically would have one but but you always remember the ones that do yeah you're right <laughs> <laughs> and that's the sad part but I mean that's it though is we do have a lot of wineries I actually uh, up until right now didn't realize that all these wineries had that license to blend and don't so why why haven't you why didn't you I mean clearly the wineries that do it have found a way to make money uh, yeah they have um but there's making money and then there's um there's making great wine and and we could never put ontario on the map um unless vqa had the had taken such a definitive position that it's going to be 100% ontario 100% ontario grown and and you can't tell a story about wine and about wine making 
if the grapes come from somewhere else. And so it's all about telling stories for us in, in Ontario. And, and that really is the reason for it. There, there probably could have been a corner that we turned some time ago and, and started blending, but it was just not something that was appetizing to us at all. I, I, that makes me incredibly, it makes me incredibly happy to hear that. Like just the, the whole thought of integrity and telling stories in, in wines. We don't have anything in our glass right now. Okay. So we should start with something. I'm going to assume this is the one we should start sure, with. Sure. Yeah. Okay. okay. So tell us a little bit about this. And uh, So this is uh, a newly bottled, So it um, and it's also a little bit warm. I apologize. I didn't tell it before. That's all right. Uh, newly bottled 2018 Elevation Riesling. And this is St. Urban This Vineyard? is the St. Urban Vineyard, exactly. Um, and that's what the Elevation Series is about. So, right? about well, the Elevation Series is also in our boutique vineyard. So the Elevation Series speaks to not only the elevating in terms of quality from our classic level series, uh, but also our place on the escarpment, uh, the the Vineland Estates, Saint Urban Riesling, and the Boutique Vineyard, uh, Saint Urban Vineyard, and the Boutique Vineyard are also much higher on the escarpment. Uh, there are a couple of other places around the escarpment where it's a little bit higher, but but it speaks to the only elevation change that we have in Southern Ontario that is the uh, um, the former ancient shoreline. And tell us a little bit about the show that was uh, 2018. That's two. That's two. Oh, I, I, yeah. I'll take an I'll take an IOU. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about 18 which was oh, a bit eight, of a oh my gosh 18 2018 was the uh the year that that uh, separated the uh the the big kids from the little kids i was going to say the men from the boys but we've got a lot of great uh female winemakers and women winemakers so i wasn't wouldn't uh, wouldn't do that but it, it really separated the the wheat from the chaff that was a really difficult vintage um at all points um uh, we were we were under siege by mother nature and um we ended up having the harvest be incredibly narrow in terms of timelines. Typically, as, a, as, a, as an example, as a bit of a, a diversion, we would typically harvest our Rieslings over about a three to four week window where we're going to have different levels of ripeness, uh, different levels of sugar, and different levels of aromatic complexities as a function of ripeness, um, different acid levels and whatnot. So we, we try to give ourselves as many pieces of the puzzle as we can possibly have in the in the cellars to be able to do our blends. In 2018, we brought everything in in nine days. All of our wrestling, everything in. Twenty four hours if, running on the crust. We, we were we were going hard. It wasn't twenty four hours, but we were certainly doing eighteen hours a day, okay. um, bringing all the fruit in. Not because um, we were anxious to work eighteen hours a day, but if we didn't pull that fruit off, it was going to fall off the vine. It was going to rot, um, and so that was that was an incredibly stressful period for a lot of winemakers in Ontario, a lot of grape growers in Ontario. Um, so yeah, that was it was a tough one. Boy, it was a tough one. So when did you when did you realize that I guess the rains were gonna we're going to hit like well it was the rains and the humidity it was that yeah. that combined um and we, with accurate weather reporting you can you can pretty much see that but it wasn't so much understanding when the rains were going to happen because we ended up quite honestly we ended up picking a lot in the rain that, that yeah. year we just had to get it off the, uh, the the bigger issue was the heat uh the humidity and the mildew that was that was taking over in inside of the vineyards. And so they get this, what's called gray rot. And this gray rot actually just, just takes the skins of the grapes and turns them to mush. So you, you could shake the vine and they would just literally, the vines would just literally fall or the grapes would mm. literally fall which off. Is, which is totally the opposite of, as I rem- and I remember visiting you uh, in early 2018 and I was saying, so how 17 realizing that, you know, 17 had been a really rainy growing season but a fantastic fall. Correct. And that, I remember I, you, to me, coined the phrase miracle vintage. Yes. The first time I had heard it. 
and uh, just what made that vintage so special. 2017. Yeah. It, it was the the uh, seven and a half weeks or seven, eight weeks of, of, of a great fall. The, the moment, so the, if you remember, the summer was, was yeah. pretty cold, summer. damp, <laughs> wet summer. Um, if anybody uh, usually spends time at the lakes, they would have not enjoyed that or on a boat, they would have had a tough well, time. It was every weekend it was rainy and crappy. It was rainy and crappy, yeah. exactly. And it was the first week of September, everything turned around and the heat came and everything ripened beautifully. So yeah, the Miracle Vintage 2017 was fantastic in the end. Great for cool vintage varietals. So you end up working with some really great uh, fruit, obviously this this um, vice clone uh, in, this, in this vineyard. Um, I guess the question is, when did you realize you had something really special? From the vineyard itself or this specific wine? Well, from both. I mean, from from the vineyard itself. Like, I mean, when you plant a vineyard, you're like, well, I hope. You know, it's always a hope, especially in a new world uh, kind of way. You know, it's not yeah, like we, the old world where they know exactly where everything's going to grow because they have hundreds of years of experience. We've got a 40-year industry here, let's be honest. And when when they planted that, they were like, well, let's hope this works out. When did you as a winemaker realize, you know what, I've really got something special and now I've got to stick it into elevation or the other, you know, I used to call it something. What did they used to call the uh, the elevation series? Was oh, called? Well, we had the St. Urban Vineyards. Yeah, just just St. Urban Vineyards, yeah. yeah. And we merged the two in 2011. The, um, well, I would have to say it was it, it, not a decision that I made. It, was, it wasn't a conscious decision that we had this aha moment. Um, we owe a, a huge debt of thanks and are forever grateful to the Weiss family, again, to Herman Weiss, who, who identified this particular property. And, and he is the one that planted all of those grapes. He's the one that had the vision. All we're doing is just following in his footsteps. He's, he, he built that foundation. And so when you're a man of that integrity and a man of that knowledge, the growing grapes in, in one of the most storied regions in the uh, wine regions in the world, in the Mosul, comes to Canada and, and picks this place, you know he did it for a reason. Um, and so, so what makes him come to Canada, yeah, first and, of all? And, and what were those reasons? Uh, well, initially he was wanting to sell his vines in Canada. So they're, they have their winery that is now run by Nick, um, but they had a, another business that they were selling grapevines, the, the small cuttings, and they were selling these all over the world. They've sold them in Moldova, they've sold them in the, in the USA, they've sold them everywhere. And he believed he thought Canada was a, a an amazing country. He loved it as as many Germans and Swiss do. They they have this kind of vision of Canada as being something extraordinary in this and sort of this wilderness, this wild place that you can live. And so he was he was really anxious to put a, a, a foothold in Canada and not only to to sell his grapevines, but to spend time because uh, he, he enjoyed coming to Canada so much. And so w- when he started selling his grapevines, he realized. The, the uptake wasn't as fast as he had hoped. There was still a lot of people dragging the heels saying, there's no way that you can grow vinifera grapevines in Ontario. It's just not going to happen. And so to convince the naysayers, he put his money where his mouth is and he bought the property and uh, com- re-terraced it as, as, uh, as they do, um, kind of recontouring it, uh, planted his vines over a three-year period. I know exactly where the first ones were planted uh, on the right-hand side and uh, of the road. And, and it was in, in that moment that, greatness was achieved when he did that. And so I take no, take no credit for it. Uh, and I can't, uh, all we do with, with Riesling and, and the greatest Riesling in the world is made by people that know how to get the hell out of the way. I'll put my money in the jar. Um, is <laughs> it, it's it, the greatest Riesling in the world is, is literally made by those that know how to get out of the way. And it, it takes a, um, 
There you go. Okay, I, got, I did bring a jar, so we'll just uh, <laughs> we'll clink one. You got a you got a clink. There we go. And we'll we'll save okay. that one for next. I know we probably should start throwing corks in or something. So That's a great idea. So we'll um, yeah. So so we'll spend the next hundred years celebrating the fact that Herman Weiss uh, chose that place. And so so when we when we come up with an elevation, why did we do that? We recognize that there were there were some specific places on that property that. Um, had very different aromatic characteristics that very different structural and, and um, textural differences that needed to be um, a, a focus for us. And we needed to be able to capture that and put it into a bottle to be able to tell the story of the St. Urban Vineyard more accurately and more clearly. Um, and so it, it's divided out into separate parts. We've got these incredibly romantic names like they do in, uh, like they do in Burgundy of Chevalier Montrachet we have field. Oh my God, a. this is Thomas Batchelder all over again. Exactly. No, no, we've 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 upped that. We've got field A, field, <laughs> field B, the amazing field C, and all the way down to field F. So we've got these amazing. <laughs> have you these, thought of renaming them? <laughs> we actually we did a, a comp- uh, contest with our wine club members, and they actually did name them for us. But it, okay. uh, it just didn't. It, st- it didn't never hit. really stuck. It, oh. yeah, it never really stuck. So um, was, was there one name that stuck out to you that might? You know, work field A was Ascension. Ascension. Yeah. All right, I didn't See, mind that. That was all right. That was okay. But none of the other ones kind of stuck. They didn't really. They didn't have a stickiness. No. <laughs> yeah. So we got to need. We need French names, obviously. We do. Talking, yeah. Or okay. German names. Or German names. Yeah, field, sense. field G is Gustav Lung. Yeah, see, <laughs> he's much better at German than I am. Well, I think he came close to the wines he made, uh, a few, I think, from 09, the Concerto series. We did the Concerto. That was actually one block that was divided. There's Field D. Yes. The celebrated Field D. Um, was Dunk, the, was the, That's what that one's Was called. the home of the Concerto series. And Field D is really interesting in that there's uh, three distinct soil types in that in that singular block. And so what I did is I harvested them separately and then produced produced them separately and so what we ended up doing the one that you're talking about was we actually did a, a field series for our uh, wine club members where it was bottled field a field b field c see my, my german is very rusty but i you know oh, german is the only class i've ever failed in my entire academic career so uh, you know we could have field a could be Achtung, Achtung. Uh, and, uh, and i don't and know any b or c but uh d beer? Oh, you, you can beer beer That's, beer just a beer you could, you could actually merge them together you could do a and b together and Achtung, baby Oh, there you go. See, it's a U2 there field. You go, the U2 album. field. Yeah, the oh, U2 yeah, yeah. field. That's what it is. Oh, now we're just adding more letters. And we're <laughs> yeah, more there you go. So, so anyways, the, the 2018 is, is a really a classic example of, of what great Riesling is in Ontario. And, and specifically, the property, uh, St. Urban Vineyard itself, really, it speaks to the, the structure of this wine. The texture is amazing. Uh, aromatics, uh, very um, tropical very citrusy, very lemony. It has kind of a cornucopia of all of the aromatics that you expect from from a Riesling. And so typically our dry Riesling would be more lemon, citrus, um, so matchstick. I don't even, know, don't even know if I can rem- remember tasting a dry Riesling yeah. from Vineland. Yeah, oh, for it, sure. Uh, yeah. My wife's got a good story about that. Yeah. Because, because okay. The, so so the dry Riesling and then the semi-dry Riesling has more tropical notes. Yeah. Um, That's uh, how I knew my Richard. wife liked dry Riesling. When she, you know, being an American, she's like, oh, I'll, I'll take... You know the dry riesling, and I'm like, she's American. She's going to be taking the sweet. And it was at Vineland that it actually happened. That I said to the guy, pour the sweet riesling, and she's like, that's too sweet. I want. Don't you have anything drier? And I was like, oh wow, this this girl knows her stuff. You know, for me, it was the um, it was the opposite. This is uh, the story I wanted to tell you. I remember it would have been about 2011, shortly after the 
New Stock 1010 had me doing my weekly segment about wine. I was looking for wines to talk about. And uh, all of my wine knowledge at that point had come from my parents, who had me pre-programmed that dry wines are good and sweet wines are bad. And I can still remember the first time I tasted that first Elevation Riesling, which is like, well, if uh, sweet wines are I guess... Oh, <laughs> I guess uh, I'm going to be drinking some from now on. And down he goes for two in a uh, row. And I mean, that was one thing where I truly understood what, what balance meant. But when you were pouring your wines for customers and, and something, you, you talked about like great Riesling and, and good expressions of Riesling. Do you have a hard time converting people who maybe they don't like sweet wines so or they come in with the impression of what a sweet wine tastes like? And when they taste this, they understand that when you get sugar meeting acid, that it is not the same thing as drinking syrup or blue nun or yeah. any of the no, other we, awful things that no we don't we don't have a hard time with that at all and i would tell you that, that the the easiest answer for that one is is measured by by people's pocketbook is what is what they buy so when they leave vineland estates typically they're they're um going to be leaving they're going to be leaving wine country and they're going to have something that is memorable and i would tell you that our production of riesling in the last 10 years has swung from roughly 50 to 60% semi-dry Riesling and the balance being dry Riesling, we're now about 90% semi-dry Riesling and 10% dry Riesling. So the production numbers uh, follow the trends, the consumer trends. So people are, are definitely having no problem whatsoever buying semi-dry Riesling. The name clearly denotes well, that it's, it's going to be semi-dry sweet. Riesling. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's your semi-dry it's, Riesling. It's a balanced Riesling. So they know what they're going to get. And, and so when they go home and they bring that uh, that wine back home and they taste it, and the, the memory of that property is, is going to be very clear to them and they're not going to be saying to themselves geez did i w- i wish i would have brought that bought that dry racing instead of that semi-dry racing so it's it's just not a conversation people have anymore and I, I would say that probably the only people that talk about it are the people like us yeah well and i mean it's uh if we, if we go back to the concerto series too mm-hmm. that was one where it was even more it, it was even more of a mind warp because if I remember, your the chemistry on the elevation is usually about 20, 30 yep. grams per liter. Yeah, we, we've had as much as 45. And the elevation, sort of the concerto series was all above 60. Yeah, all like 60. really low, really low alcohol, yeah. but searing acid. Like mm-hmm. those wines were, were so balanced. Is there ever going to be any plans to try to recreate this series? Um, yeah, I don't like repeating things like that we're okay. we're always doing something interesting with our wine club so the the this year we've got some really amazing stuff coming out for our wine club members we do eight or ten or sometimes 12 different wines for the wine club each year um, and those are all individual expressions of certain individual blocks um, and whether or not it's it's dry or off dry or otherwise um, it, it's just really not a question that we have anymore it's it's when the wine is great and we want to offer it to the people that love uh, love great wine that's what it is so we also have uh, three bottles of red in front of us, and I do have a question. So I want to figure out which wine you want us to pour first, and then uh, and then I do have a question with regards to a certain grape uh, variety. Don't bore us. Get to the chorus. Well, I got to know. <laughs> Brian's got to point to something. He's got to tell me which uh, which one is next. Well, let's do the elevation. So okay. uh, elevation again speaks to the to the place, to the site, to the vineyard itself. Elevation Cabernet is our boutique vineyard. As a crow flies about. Uh, half a kilometer or so from, from Vineland Estates Winery itself. These vines were planted in 1996, the Cab Sauv Clone 15 and the Cab Franc Clone 327. And then subsequent years after that, uh, the Clone 214 was planted in 2006. And you're going to taste those wines afterwards. So, um, so again, 
in an effort to be able to tell the story of wine in a bottle to people, you need to be able to have a story to tell. And so these vines uh, planted in 1996 are now taking on a life of their own. They These vines have matured much better than I have. Um, but you still leave a touch of gray. We still leave a touch of gray. <laughs> But um, but they've been incredibly resilient um, over over many many vintages, and so now we're we're uh, twenty to two thousand nineteen ninety six. We're twenty twenty three years old, twenty three twenty two twenty two years old, um, and they've they've had a couple of tough vintages in there. They had the, as we talked about two thousand and three was a bad year, uh, two thousand thirteen fourteen two thousand fourteen fifteen. We had some incredibly cold temperatures that uh, this vineyard had to weather through. Uh, the Cabernet Sauvignon portion of this blend, which is around 25%, 24% actually, um, that particular block of Cab Sauv has had a really tough time. Um, to put it into into numbers for you, in 2013 when we had the deep freeze, we have about 15 acres of Cab Sauv. We had 12,000 of those vines perish in the in that deep freeze. The Cabernet Franc that sits right beside it, we had another uh, just under 15 acres, we had 287 vines perish. So if there's not a, a story about uh, why Cabsov shouldn't be grown on that property, I don't know what is what is a more compelling story, but that certainly is it. So we've been interplanting uh, Cabernet Franc in the Cabsov, and eventually that vineyard will be entirely Cabernet Franc with no Cabsov represented on it whatsoever. Hmm. So that, I think, brings me to my next question. So I've asked you when you realized you had this special uh, thing in, in Riesling. So now I guess I should ask you when, hopefully you can put like a, a, a timeline on this one. 2009. When you realized Cap Franc was was it? Well, I, I knew that I knew Cap Franc was it a long time before that, um, and we had been slowly growing um, an understanding of that property and slowly growing uh, an understanding of what the potential of the, that fruit is. And so, it, again, not a big aha moment uh, in terms of me believing in Cabernet Franc, but there was an aha moment in two thousand and nine when this vineyard performed extraordinarily well in very, very adverse conditions. It was a cool year, and the wines were incredibly um, rich, structured, textured, the, everything that you would expect a, a, a great uh, red wine to be, regardless of where it comes from. And and so it was in that moment, in that year, that I decided I wanted to start focusing on telling the story about the Boutique Vineyard in the Elevation Series. So the very first first vintage of Elevation Cab was actually 2005, uh, but it was never fully vetted and, and fully understood until 2009, until then. So you obviously believe that Riesling and Cab Franc are two of the, you know, grapes that Ontario should hang its hat on. I do. Is there uh, another grape or two that you believe in, or is Are two it... not enough? I just... I, I know there's five, theoretically, now in Well, that's, but that's you and existence. I who throw down the five, right? Well, I think the fifth one just kind of got added officially. I thought I heard that. Go Gamay Go? Yes, exactly. So Gamay being the fifth. So Riesling, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Cab Franc, Gamay. Is, yeah. is there one of those three that you think, yeah, I think it's got a definite future here? Or would you go outside the box and say, boom, nope, we're going this way? No, it's it's really difficult to, to pigeonhole uh, ourselves into one one segment, one box. And I, I don't know that we really need to. There's there's lots of great places that grow great Pinot Noir in, in southern Ontario. Fantastic Pinot Noir. Um, stunning Chardonnay, world class Chardonnays that are being celebrated throughout the world, and I know that's your favorite your favorite wine too. Of course, mine. Yes, um, Andre and, hates the grape, and some, <laughs> and also some absolutely amazing Gamay. So I don't think we have to simply say 
is Cab Franc and Riesling going to be the, the varieties that carry us into the future? I think we can be more than just two two grape varieties. But from Vineland Estates' perspective, those are the two that we will be focusing on in terms of a fundamental understanding of our future. But the, the region, I think there's there's really fantastic Pinot Noir grown and, and made. Thomas Backhalder's just started the, the closure at Anagen. Uh, and I'm sure the 2017, again, the Miracle Vintage, I'm sure those wines are stunning. And so... The one the one reason why I often say that Pinot Noir is not necessarily the grape that I would hang on Ontario's reputation on entirely is that the inputs are incredibly high in order to make great Pinot Noir. So you, you've got to do a lot of work in the vineyard. It costs a, a tremendous amount of money to get Pinot Noir to the point at which you can harvest great fruit. And then once it comes into the cellar, again, the fickleness continues. And, and it's difficult to get the hands of the consumers because of this high input. Well, exactly. Like Pinot Noir. Exactly. Is, so it's, it's never, you're never going to find a tipping point whereby Pinot Noir is the variety that, that everybody says we need to do in Ontario because you're not going to be able to get it into the hands of the consumer at a, at a $15 price point right. for the vast majority of the wines where the, uh, the vast majority of the wines are being sold. And so Cab Franc, you can do that. You can grow it at, at five or six tons per acre. You can get great expressive fruit there. Um, you can bring it into the cellars. You don't have to do excessive use in terms of oak manipulation. Uh, and the wines themselves come out in our classic Cab Franc series that we do 10,000 cases of a year is a really good example of that where you can make money making great wine at $15 a bottle. And that's where, that's where the vast majority of the volume of wine is being sold. But the stories that are being told in Ontario often are the stories of, of winemakers that are putting an extraordinary amount of effort into producing these great wines. And those are the, those are the fun stories to listen to. And those are the fun stories that we want to be able to, to celebrate with all of the, uh, these amazing talented winemakers that we have in Ontario, but more specifically for the consumers, the consumers are saying, what can I get for $15 a bottle that can I can have on a Tuesday night? And it's not going to be, Pinot Noir just isn't going to be that. It's not, you're not going to be able to do it. But Chardonnay does a great job. Gamay, fantastic again. Um, Chardonnay, sadly, everybody in the world makes great Chardonnay, so you're never going to really be able to put your own stamp on it that says this is, this is the best Chardonnay in the world. But we can probably do that with Cap Franc. See, I would agree with the Cap Franc. I and that and well. um, I, I, I think I, as, as, a, as a writer and as a consumer, realize that, and this is why I was excited to have you on, is because of your love for Cab Franc, and I know Andre shares my love and our Definitely. love of the grape, is Big when I could in. buy a twelve ninety five wine. Because that's when I, when, I, when I started buying wine, they were twelve ninety five. I know they're up to $15, but I mean, you've you got to make some money somehow. <laughs> well, that's, well, that's still not a lot but to I, ask for the, the quality, the quality the, of the wine. The vast majority of all wines sold in the LCBO are $15. That's, that's where the, so, the lion's share of the But I remember are. buying it for twelve ninety five, and I remember bringing an old bottle. I think I brought a 2005 over to your house, Andre, once, and we cracked oh, it we, open. And, and I was, think we'd open it for like the podcast or something. It was supposed to sip on, and we ended up drinking it. Yeah, it was fantastic. And you, it was already at that point. I don't, I don't know what at the age of fourteen. No, mm-hmm. it couldn't have been fourteen years. It had to be twelve years old. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it was it was a twelve dollar bottle of wine. Thirteen for twelve ninety five is thirteen dollars. Let's say that lasts twelve years. No way. There's yeah, no I just, I just way opened up a two thousand and two a couple of weeks ago, and it was yeah. stunning. Absolutely no way stunning. it should be. It should be that good yeah. for that price. And it just it just it really it really opened my eyes to the to the uh, to the grape. Well, I, I mean, okay. So we've just talked about um, the expensive inputs for Pinot Noir, and, and before we go completely off on a tangent about this, uh, I want to talk to you a bit about, about your site specifically because higher elevation generally means a little bit colder 
temperatures. Yeah, are. again, there's not there's no places in southern Ontario where it's actually high. Having come from BC, I can attest yeah. to that. Is it a challenge at Vineland to, to keep the St. Urban Vineyard alive uh, through the cold winters? Or um, same thing with the Cabernet Franc wines. Like, how do they respond to the winter being a little bit yeah, higher so up on the, the escarpment? Yeah, well, they, they don't respond any differently than, than any other grapes in Ontario. It's where the cold settles. Uh, being on the escarpment, uh, we have the natural air drainage where the air is going to move down and, and into, and it's going to pocket into lower areas. And, and naturally, that is the that is the plains or the, the flatlands of, of Niagara. So the escarpment has a bit of a benefit in that um, we have that natural air drainage. But we do have pockets. We have areas on the, in all of our vineyards where there's going to be low spots and where we're going to have damage. Uh, 2013 and 14, 14, 15 was a classic example where nobody was spared. Nobody in, in southern Ontario you had was spared a at all. One of those years? Yeah, 2012, we brought a helicopter in. That was for spring frost. The okay. the winter frost is the one that was deadly to okay, uh, okay. for two years in a row. The winter frost, we we lost 56,000 vines in those wow. in those two vintages. Wow. Um, where out of 120 acres of grapes, that's a lot. You do the math, and so. Um, but we were, everybody was, everybody was hit hard. We were not, um, specifically chosen by mother nature to, to take a, to take a hard beating that time. But the, um, but to tell you this, the story again, that the, I said that earlier, the Cab Sauv in our boutique vineyard, we lost 12,000 vines out of the 15 acres. That's half the vineyard. Um, the boutique, uh, Cab Franc, however, we only lost 287 vines. And so when you, when you take that metric, into consideration, it obviously tells you that Cabernet Franc is more suited to the specific spot where we are growing because you have to factor in cold temperatures in the winter um, in order to understand what you can grow on your place. It's not just what you can ripen it, but it's it's what doesn't die in the winter. So let's talk a little bit about boutique since we have two bottles of them in front of us. Do I go with the, the one on the right or the one on the left? Is the uh, two fourteen is is the one that I typically start with uh, earlier. So, so we're looking at. So, tell us a little bit about Boutique Vineyard, but uh, maybe, maybe before we do that, I just, I want to kind of lean back a little bit and go. So, you come here to help your brother, who's the winemaker, because we do have to do a little bit of history. We can't mm-hmm. just stay completely in the present. What is your winemaking experience when you come, or is it just were you oh, were you I was saving that one? Oh, oh, okay. Uh, well, growing up in a vineyard and growing up in a winery that um, you just through osmosis, you're going to have. Um, Thank you. You're going to have some level of experience, whether whether you like it or not. And so, picking although picking rocks in our home vineyard at Sumac Ridge after schools for weeks on end uh, certainly builds character. It doesn't build winemaking skill. Um, so fundamentally, I would say that I I thrust myself into understanding winemaking in 1991 when I came to Ontario. I had had some. Uh, sort of tertiary knowledge as a kid growing up and, and having wine always at the table and wine always in an ever-present conversation in our family. And so y- you pick stuff up after three generations. My grandfather grew grapes and my father grew grapes. And, and so so my winemaking skills, however, were truly honed in those early days at Vineland Estates. Um, when, uh, when you were speaking earlier today, I understand with Andre Lipinski. Andre, we were, yes. Andre started uh, with us at, at Vineland Estates in 1993, and uh, and in many ways, Andre and I learned how to make wine together. Uh, we were we were do, we were doing a lot a lot of amazing things. We were working hard, a lot of hours, and uh, just the sweat equity was put into uh, into learning 
this amazing craft and learning our vineyards and learning learning what it is to 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 make great wine. And in many ways, we were making wine out of the back of a Chevy pickup truck for a lot of years. We didn't have any of the proper tools. We didn't have any of the the proper knowledge. We were, it was just all gut instinct. And so, um, you you can't become masterful at anything unless you screw up a lot of stuff. And I can tell you, Andre and I screwed up a lot of stuff. So here's a, an interesting trivia question: uh, How many wineries has Andre Lipinski worked at? Jeez. Where's the swear jar? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I take a guess. Starting um, with you. Mental math, mental math. Uh, ten. Twelve. Twelve. Yeah. Okay. So but, but we but we can. I'm giving him ten. Okay. Because the last two were big head and. The and next his, and his newest out. one. So 10 is, yeah, yeah, I guess that's that's pretty close. Mm-hmm. You're, you're being a bit of a smarmy you-know-what. No, but I think that's, I, I can't think of any other winemaker who's worked at that many at that many wineries and helped so many wineries Yeah, and he helped up. so many, yeah, and he's done, a, he's done a great job, and, and he's done it through pulling up his own bootstraps. He, man, that guy works hard. You've never, you, there is not a winemaker in Ontario that works harder than him. And that he started at Vineland he, is, is pretty, is pretty yeah. impressive that I think you, you should be commended for, you know, giving him that, that start and, and, and Oh, make like no it. mistake about it. It, it wasn't a, a, I gave him a start. It was, I need a guy to help. <laughs> And he he was he was actually working on the um, the carriage house building with a a bricklayer uh, stonemason named Valgos who was um, renovating the carriage house after it had been destroyed in a fire. Uh, Andre, uh, having newly immigrated here, was working for Pete Ends in Niagara Lake, and then ended up needing to get some extra work. And he started working with Valgos uh, on the with the the renovation of the carriage house. And after that was done, he didn't have anything to do, and I needed somebody and. And he said, "Do you mind if I if I come and help you in the in the cellars?" And and he took to it like a fish to water. I tell you, he's a, he, he's unbelievable. He's got a fantastic palate. He's got great intuition, and uh, he's just a, a incredibly hardworking, fantastic guy. So speaking of fantastic, this uh, so this is the 2016 Boutique Vineyard Cabernet Franc uh, planted in 2006. So this is a, this is yeah. a colonial expression. Clone so two. two so one of the beauties of the boutique vineyard is it's very consistent, uh, and we've we've divided it up into not as many blocks as Saint Urban, but there is a couple of different blocks, uh, and we refer to specifically the Cab Franc as north and south. So, as consistent as that vineyard is, um, the soil structure, the 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 underpinning limestone that is uh, underneath almost all vineyards in the escarpment, the the clay. Uh, above the limestone, think right bank, uh, Bordeaux, um, is incredibly conducive to producing these unbelievably luxurious, um, beautiful Cabernet Franc. And so, so when you look at the property, it was easy for us to do a clonal difference because it, the the property itself is so consistent from the north south to the 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 south block to the north block. So we have planted two thousand and six the two fourteen clone that we're tasting now. We have planted in nineteen ninety six the three two seven clone that was planted. These wines uh, were made purposely to be able to share to to share with people the clonal expression of Cab Franc. All of the decisions that I made in terms of making these wines were identical with the exception of harvest dates. 214 ripens a little bit earlier than 327. So respecting the harvested parameters for each of the clonal differences, we brought the the fruit into the cellars 
and made it using all of the exact same principles. Every decision was exactly the same from one wine to the next. Exact same amount of time in barrel, neutral barrels with absolutely no um, impression of new oak whatsoever. And so what you get is this beautiful, luxurious, very floral expression for the 214. Uh, very elegant, very feminine. Three two seven is going to be very masculine, very rugged, uh, a little more deep berry fruits. Yeah, I'm looking uh, forward and, to tasting that. I know that Andre's uh, got this eating grin on his face. <laughs> well, well it's, it's just you know what? Actually, Brian, um, like I said, I, I got to meet your brother Alan before I met you. But uh, one of the ways I got to know you um, well before we met face to face was through social media. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing that I love about the boutique labels was these were almost designed a little bit by committee by your following on Facebook. Because I remember it was that was a ton of fun. But it was like it was. You remember when uh, like when Star Wars Episode One came out and the trailer was in the theaters? I can't remember which movie it was connected to, but people were going to see the trailer and walking out of the movie. It was just like, it was so exciting to see this. Uh, like you, you've been known for Cab Franc and a champion for Cab Franc on social media, at Bench Wine Guy on Twitter and, and Instagram. Instagram. Uh, but, like, but like to see this like, you know, really nerdy, single vineyard, small block expression come up was really exciting. But to see you go to your following and, and help design it by committee was also exciting as well. Well, because that's where all the answers lie. And, and if, we, if we allow ourselves to live in a bubble, um, and and we can make wines that we may love, but it's conceivable that we'll never sell a bottle of it because if if you don't listen to the people that that love the wines that you're that you're making, if you don't hear them, if you don't respond to them, then it's what's the point? And so social media has been an absolutely uh, fundamental game changer for us and for me as a winemaker because we get instant feedback from people. And so you're absolutely right. This, this label, we had come up with several different designs, several different designs for the, the horse. And then we ended up putting it out there and people voted on it and we, yep. we tabulated all the results. And, and not only have we done that, but we've also done that with, um, the, the concerto series. We did that with our wine club independently and yep. outside of social media. It was kind of before I was, I was, um, participating really in that. Yeah. Um, but we've we've actually done a, a blending session where I've I've invited people uh, to come to Vineland Estates on a certain day that were following me and said come here and we're gonna we're gonna do the semi dry riesling blend yeah. and so the 2013 semi dry riesling was blended by committee from social media. That's, that's interesting. That's awesome. Well, and I mean, even just in terms of um, education, uh, it's one of the fun things my, my one of my favorite moments on on uh, social media was the moment you got your optical sorter wow game changer mm-hmm. yeah and i mean uh definitely a game changer in terms of, of a quality of wine because i've always been high quality at vineland but that essentially watching that video if, if no one's ever gone on and watched that video i you got to post it again every yeah, year like it's just that. It's just fun so to watch really, it. Yeah. Really so, machine. just for, really for those machine. for those that are listening that uh, aren't certain what we're talking about, this, so we have a we've purchased a machine in 2014 that optically separates ripe grapes from underripe grapes, as well as green material called mog material other than grapes. So, bits of leaves, bits of stems, uh, bits of rachis, and it actually physically separates all of this product, uh, and we can singularly pull out only the best fruit. And so the wines that we make have been separated through this optical sorter. And we're uh, the only winery in Canada to have it for quite a number of years. I believe that we still are. There might be one in BC and maybe Mission Hill has one now. Um, but the optical sorter itself 
has afforded us the opportunity to take some of the hills and valleys out of our vintage variation that we have in Ontario. And we can expect vintage variation for sure. So some years I'll take 20% out, some years I'll take 5% out. 2016 was a great year where we didn't have to take anything out, or very little. Wow. Um, and 2017, we took a little bit more. And so it, it helps us. What about 18? Took a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Just waiting for that one. But the, but the beauty of the, the material that we take out, we're able to capture that, press it immediately, and that's how we make our rosé. And so the fruit is not being discarded, it's still being used, and we've made stunning and gorgeous rosé because you don't require as much ripeness uh, to produce excellent rosés. And so we'll, 2019, I'm sure we'll be making a lot of rosé again if this rain doesn't if this stop. Isn't, yeah. yeah. Well, so, we could have so, a miracle harvest again. Could have any yeah. miracle. So, so this was, a, this was a, a, a real flyer for us when we bought this machine. It was unbelievably expensive. Uh, the Degasperus family, uh, when we came to them with this proposition, we said we're going to spend a half million dollars on a thing that we use for four weeks a year. They didn't tell you to go fly a kite, they were They were like, what? Four weeks a year? Can you explain this a little bit? And so we we went through the uh, through the math and, and explained to them, and we were able to justify it. And thankfully, from a business perspective, we were able to pay for it in under three years. And so, from a business perspective, that's a good investment. Well, and and the way I mean, it's it's the I, I don't know. I think most people listening to this podcast would know that there's a lot of cooperation in the industry. But if you're new to Ontario wine, you may not realize just how. Uh, rising tide brings all, all boats up, it and uh, you're optically sorting fruit for a lot of your neighbors. People and people are happy to say that that they got the hand from that. I was uh, I was sitting at an event uh, not so long ago where uh, somebody was asking me about the optical sort, and they said, "Oh, I, I understand that you uh, that you also sort for other other wineries as well. That's that's like unbelievable. Why would you do that? You're, they're your competition." And I, I scanned the room quickly and I said, from my vantage point in this seat where I'm sitting right now, there are eight people here who have benefited from our, uh, from the, the optical sorter itself. And I wish none, all of them absolute success. They are not our competition. Our competition is California, France, Australia, New Zealand. That's our competition. Our neighbors down the street are not our competition. Hence why I don't even like the term competition. I don't even, we, we don't even submit wines to wine competitions anymore because I don't believe that, that competing with my neighbors is, is the most valuable use of my time. They, they're all producing fantastic wine and, and they have great stories. We have great stories. And, and to say our wine is better than theirs in this single moment in time, or their wine is better than ours in a single moment in time, it, it, to me, is 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 a completely flies in the face of everything that we want to do as an industry to grow together. So we should talk a little bit about these these two wines that yeah, we, we both, talked both just but stunning, but so different. So the uh, the clone two one two fourteen two fourteen two one four. Think feminine, think um, floral. But I got a nice richness out of that one. Well, wait till well. you try the three two seven. And the three two seven we just did. Uh, oh, you, okay. Good. Yeah. Got so it. the three two seven I found was uh, we'll pour that for you again. You were so excited by it that you didn't even realize you had it there in the glass. Um, did you want any more on? Okay. Yeah, three two seven is is more masculine, a little more rugged, kind of fieldberry notes. Yep. Um, again, what I really love about about Cab Franc and especially the way we're making it now, utilizing only neutral oak barrels, um, we. Uh, we speak about Riesling as being Riesling sort of a mirror image of the, of the terroir in which it's grown. I would tell you that Cabernet Franc does the exact same thing. I would say that Cab Franc responds to its terroir uh, as readily uh, and, and as profoundly as... Yeah, go ahead. Yep. Yeah, open that. Um, as, as readily and as profoundly as, as Riesling does. And so when you look at the, uh, the terroir of the Boutique Vineyard, again, very consistent, we can... We can determine these clonal separations but what i did two years ago in 2016 with 
a bunch of Cab Francs from all around the area. As When we're producing as much Cab Franc as we do, we have to rely on getting uh, fruit from other growers around the peninsula. Okay. Ah, oh, there you go. There Michael's go. just having a hard time uncorking a bottle there. Good job. So we get a lot of fruit from around the peninsula, and, and I'm able to source fruit oh. from various spots around Niagara, not, not only in Niagara Lake, but also around Beamsville Bench and um, on the uh, uh, on the escarpment, some other vineyards as well. So what we oh. did is we did a cab, it was called uh, Cab Ride. So we did seven different Cabernet Francs from all around the, the area, and I employed the exact same uh, theory that we did with the uh, the boutique wines. We we brought the fruit in, produced it in, in exactly the same manner, using the same yeast, using the same uh, fermentation techniques, uh, using uh, air to to, uh, to turn the the pump overs uh, as opposed to pumping, and taking those wines, putting them directly into neutral oak, and leaving them for sixteen months. And so we now have seven different wines from different sub-appellations around the Niagara Peninsula, only with Cab Franc. And so we have different clones there, but we also have um, represented the families from around the region. So we've got the Smith family. They're actually just there for lunch today. The um, the Falk family, the Juan Newman. Um, we've got uh, Marcus Van Beers, who's been producing great Cab Franc for years. And, and so all of these producers gave us their fruit. A lot of it goes into our classic Cab Franc blend, but we capture a small amount of it, and then we've, and we've done this individual and bottling. These so are you do out? Uh, these are going to be released in September. So we're releasing all, all, them right now to our wine seven. club members. All seven of them are going to be released en masse. And looks so like, it looks like we're going to have to have you back for a yeah, big well, tasting. What, so, what, what do the labels look like? Uh, pretty interesting. It kind of looks like a cab, uh, sort of a cab ride. That's hence why it's called cab ride. Cab ride. And so, huh. so this is this is an. Um, Wow, this is like, I'm, my mind's a little bit blown right now. <laughs> so so this was an attempt to have us all understand the true virtues of Cap Franc, not just from the boutique vineyard, but from around the region. And there are so many great producers and so many great areas where we can make stunning Cap Francs, and this is a testament to that. So Brian, we're gonna ha- we're gonna have you back in a, in a believe it or not in a little bit. We don't we don't actually leave, but we're gonna we're gonna do the stump the stoop with you. Okay, uh, but not right away. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna speaking about mind blowing. You were nice enough to bring along a ten-year-old Cabernet Franc, and this is this would have been twelve ninety-five. This was twelve ninety-five when uh, when you brought it out. So you want to have your mind blown? Like, I guess we're gonna see if it'll blow our minds. Let's just see, and we'll end the podcast by uh, by at least looking at uh, uh, this one. Uh, this is the vintage that you you uh, think is one of the best. Absolutely. In, in so when tenure? you look at the uh, the elevation series and uh, for Cab Franc in that year, mm. it's absolutely stunning. Again, so, long-lived wines. So I, I get a little bit of the uh, the kind of an herbal tobacco note. Yeah, it's got from it. quite a quite a vegetal note on the nose. But uh, you would expect that cool vintage, if I'm not mistaken. Cool vintage, yeah. Uh, known great for great acidity. Like mm. if it was mm. it was a wines that I remember. I remember Daryl Brooker uh, launched the very first Trius Sauvignon Blanc that year, yes. and it was under the first screw cap for uh, for yep. Trius. And I remember the acidity being just out off the chart. You would have sworn it was from New Zealand, typical for an Australian winemaker. But, uh, uh, but I remember Cabernet. I, mean, I remember if, Cabernet Franc from Megalomaniac in 2009 being very, very good. And yeah. Sue and staff talking about how challenging the vintage was. But it's definitely so. This is going to open up in the glass in, in a little bit. What you're going to end up getting is it's kind of think of flower pot. You get kind of that earthy note that you get from the dirt in the bottom of a flower pot. You get the the Slightly in, um, textured um, nuances of tannins 
and a little bit of those vegetal notes, kind of that flower. But product. I mean, it's it's not. You know, I, I remember like around this time. Let's call mm-hmm. it two thousand two, two thousand three. We were all expecting, and we were we all thought of Ontario Cafranc with that bell pepper note, right? Yeah. Um, so nine would have been one of those classic vintages where you would have thought that bell pepper would have come out. I don't really get the bell pepper. I get uh, bell I, pepper on the nose, but not on the palate. I, I like I'm, I'm tasting this. And I, and I'm, I'm getting a lot of I, leather, actually. But yeah, and I'm th- yeah. I keep thinking, oh, maybe I'm going to get some bell pepper in here, but it's 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 still. And I think that's that's part of the winemaking. We got the bell pepper out of there and started bringing in the yeah, tobacco. The, and the, the bell pepper and the has, has more to do with uh, the harvesting decisions than it does with the actual fruit, because in many cases, to be able to gain the economies of scale that you need to be able to produce a wine at fifteen dollars a bottle, you end up machine harvesting all of that fruit. We also leave the grapes on as long as we possibly can to capture as much sun as possible, which is then becomes counterintuitive in terms of winemaking because then we mechanically harvest these grapes often after the first frost. The first frost is going to release all the grapes, the, the leaves off the vines, but the petioles are going to still be there. Those petioles enter the, the fermentation process, and those petioles are green and bitter and hard and and totally herbaceous and so if you can get rid of petioles if you can get them out of the process then you can make great get franc and that's an absolutely uh critical point that's why we brought the that's why we bought the optical sorter um and this was long before the optical sorter well but i was so if i might use a somewhat of a derogatory term for years Many growers referred to me as a petiole Nazi. Is that I was out? I don't know. That's that's a swear jar. Right? No, is it? Not. I think we're good. <laughs> that, I think we're good. That uh, I was absolutely vigilant in terms of harvesting, um, and we were sort of one of the first wineries to kind of get behind the onboard sorting systems on harvesters, uh, onboard cleaning systems. I'm sorry, and uh, and so th- there was a, a real learning curve for a lot of people. We had to get those petioles out of the uh, out of the process, and so to do so required expense and we were actually uh, taking a lot of our cab franc that we got from growers that was mechanically harvested and putting that over a sorting table when i had our vineyard crew eight and nine people standing there pulling out only the petioles and it slowed our process way down but we were able to make great wines and this is one of those wines well brian thank you so much for bringing these great wines in and it's um i always look forward to tasting the elevation riesling to remind myself that i'm drinking uh wines according to my parents oh that's there's another, another one, one going into there, there. there we go yeah, into that the, so uh, I, I guess what what we should really touch upon you have a pet project um i don't know if it's called a pet project but i keep seeing on on your your oh, yeah passion uh, project passion project i yeah. guess is the thing yeah. um it's something to do with haiti so i think you should uh, yeah. tell us a little bit about this because you see well, it on instagram and facebook and well, thank wherever you. you are so thank you yeah uh haiti's near and dear to my heart i first went there in 2013 completely unexpecting to be uh enamored and, and falling in love with this country i was there taking my son and a group of uh seven other kids uh, on a mission trip through a, a youth group uh, that my son belonged to. And so um, my wife said, okay, he can go, but you're going with him. And turns out I was the only one that went back. And so, um, yeah, we we work with an agency out of Louisiana, husband and wife, a really small NGO. I don't even want to call it an NGO. And um, What's an NGO? Uh, non-government um, organization. organization. Yep. And so uh, it's a husband and wife that run this uh, Haiti Mission, Inc., 
And they've been going there. They started drilling, drilling water wells, and then they ended up building homes and building schools. Um, and we've got little micro businesses that we've started down there. And one of the things that I've done in the last little while is I, we actually have a farm down there. We've got uh, a one and a half hectare farm where we're growing vegetables, where we've got uh, Haitian people working for us. We're taking um, 20% of the, the vegetables that we grow, and we're giving that to an orphanage uh, in order to be able to help them out. And we're selling the balance. And ultimately, we will be growing hot peppers there that will be drying shipping back to Canada and producing hot sauce under the name Haitian Heat. And so that's going to be something that will happen in the next uh, 18 months or so. It's taking a little while to get that done. I've Actually, three weeks ago, I just got the the, um, the letter from the lawyer saying that we own those terms, Haitian Inspirations and Haitian Heat. But it's it's an absolutely beautiful place. Uh, don't let the news media fool you. It is a, an absolutely gorgeous place. Uh, they've got some political struggles for sure, but the people are absolutely amazing, and I've totally fallen in love with them. Well, it looks like we got a few dollars to add to your effort from the. That was the great. Swear keep jar, swearing, so by it. Keep <laughs> swearing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Brian. We really appreciate you being here. He is the reason we have the swear jar. Yeah, it was his. Thanks a lot, Brian. I appreciate that. Because, but you know, I, I actually, have thrown more uh, more coins in the swear jar than anyone else, and he actually made us bring one out. You know, but you know, I think I think it, he makes us a better person, better people, because that's the sort of person that you Brian make me is. want to be a better man. But I mean, that's it, though. I, 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 hey, I think just being aware of language is you and I, we work in words. What are you, Jack Nicholson, for we God's sake? We work in words, and we need to remember that words are important. That's true. I'm Michael Bengus of MichaelBengusWineReview.com. I really can't. We just had Brian Schmidt on. I don't know what else we can say. Patreon. Patreon.com. Look for two guys talking wine. Uh, I don't know. I'll figure it out, but we get enough Patreon supporters. We're still, we'll start kicking in for... Brian's mission in Haiti because it's a cool thing that he does down there, and yeah. I think it's important to help people. It's really neat. I really, really, my my wife right after that was like, "Well, throw more coins in the swear jar." She wanted us to swear more. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, that yeah, was, that's we actually restrained her, but I think it's because Brian was in the room. Anyways, Andre Proof, AndreAndreView.ca. Thanks very much. Uh, good night. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes.